Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. When Michael Jackson died on June 25, 2009, it shocked the world. What followed shocked many tax attorneys. At the time of his death, Jackson was clearly worth millions, but the exact value of his estate was unclear. The matter eventually ended up in court with a ruling that Michael Jackson's image and likeness at the time of his death were worth considerably less than the IRS estimated. How this happened and what it means for other estates became a big question mark. To talk about this today, I've asked Scott Weingast and Aaron Stump of Stout, a global investment bank and advisory firm specializing in corporate finance, valuation, financial disputes, and investigations to the show. Scott is the leader of intellectual property valuation practice at Stout. He has over 20 years of experience providing consulting services to corporations, law firms, universities, and investment firms primarily in the areas of intellectual property valuation, damages, monetization, and management. Aaron is a managing director in the Valuation Advisory Group. Aaron co-leads Stout's trust and estate valuation practice. Prior to joining Stout, Aaron worked at Ernst & Young, where he planned, performed, and supervised audit engagements across a diverse client base, ranging from closely held private companies the Fortune 500 companies, and the financial services, manufacturing, and retail industries. Thank you both for being here today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, so let's just right out of the gate kind of start talking about Michael Jackson, because I think that's a case that is still fascinating people today, even though, you know, now there's some resolution. Can you kind of give us the skinny on why the IRS took the position that they took regarding the valuation and why was it argued that that was not a fair valuation? Sure. This is Scott. I can start off with that question. So the way the timeline worked, as I understand it in the case, was that soon after uh, Michael Jackson passed, his estate submitted a return to the IRS regarding the value of various assets, including Michael's image and likeness. And on this estate tax return, they reported that the, the image and likeness of Michael Jackson was worth only approximately $2,000 at the date of his death. Several years later, as the IRS kind of reviewed that tax return, they came back with a letter, a notice of deficiency, really saying that they didn't agree with many of the valuation issues that were part of, of that tax return. But in particular, the image and likeness as, as one particular asset that was a large difference or difference in, in perspective on value, the IRS thought that those assets were worth well over $400 million. So here you have a state that says this asset's worth $2,000. Mm-hmm. You've got the IRS who believes it's worth $400 million. And ultimately, that really kind of kicks off a dispute where now the parties are going to have to try to figure out, can we agree upon... Um, what we think these assets are worth, perhaps somewhere in the middle of those of that very, very large range, or otherwise, will we need a, a court to determine what the value is? And, and that's kind of how things proceeded. But ultimately, these are assets that are very, very hard to value. And there are some particular 
facts and circumstances associated with Michael Jackson's image and likeness around the time of his death that I think caused this really large range of values to be submitted, or at least considered by the estate and the IRS. So let's start there and then we can kind of dive into more details perhaps. Yeah, because I think that that is what is perplexing to folks because there's always going to be questions, right? In valuation. Like I might think my house is worth a few thousand dollars more than a potential buyer, right? Like we expect there to be some disagreements when it comes to valuation. But these numbers, like it's not a little gap, right? Like the numbers that you're talking about, that's a huge swing. So I think that's why this case in particular is so interesting. So yeah, let's talk about how they got there. I would say, think about it as just, even outside from a valuation perspective, think about it just as, you know, you're a person living in the world and you know, you know, you know who Michael Jackson is, right? There's probably a group of people at the time of his death who thought very negatively of Michael Jackson. He had had some significant legal problems over the years. In particular, he had been had some accusations associated with potential sexual abuse of children. His reputation had really taken a hit. In the meanwhile, there are still many, many people around the world who are huge fans of his music. They may not have felt negatively about Michael Jackson because they had been longtime fans for decades. And so you can imagine, even just from a layman's perspective, some people probably thought, God, I can imagine why no one would want to pay this guy any money to use his image or likeness in some commercial manner. And then there are many others who would say, you know, I still buy the music. I would still buy products that he sold or he was associated with. I'd still go to his concert. So even amongst just the general population, I could, you could see how there could be a huge disagreement in how people think about Michael Jackson and, and what this, this asset, this image and likeness might be worth. And, and I think that that translates even to professional appraisers who are thinking through these issues. There's a really great argument to be made that this is not worth a lot, this asset, because mm-hmm. of all the reasons I described. And then there's a, a perspective that it really, you know, this is someone who's the, one of the most famous pop stars in the world, and it must be worth a lot. So even, you know, just from that very basic perspective, I think you can see how you can come to some very, very different conclusions, whether you're a layman, a fan, or even evaluation expert. And you also raised the issue of timing, and that's important too, right? Because from the... IRS's perspective, I think they're trying to anticipate, I guess, what his worth would be, but it really is supposed to have been a snapshot as of the date of his death. Correct. And so this is one of the main issues that we've highlighted as we reviewed the U.S. tax court's case as it relates to the value of the image and likeness. One of the issues that came out was this need when you do evaluation to kind of put yourself on the date of the valuation, which in this case is the date of Michael Jackson's passing all the way back in 2009. And although they were trying to determine the value 10, 11, 12 years later, ultimately in the court, you have to ignore everything that occurs after the date of death, other than those things that you would have expected at the time of his passing. So it's really a hard thing to do, right? We're all just human beings, right? Our we know what has happened in the last 10 or 12 years. We know, for instance, there have been various ways that Michael Jackson's image and likeness has been used in a commercial manner to make people a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But the question is, what was expected at the time of his passing? And that's what makes, and that's a real, just a much harder question to answer. And it's hard to take your, yourself away from everything that you've known 
has happened over those last 10, 11, 12 years. Right. And how do you value an image? Because it's, I think, you know, obviously I mentioned a house earlier, you know, we always think of it in the law as willing buyer, willing seller, right? But it's different when you're looking at a likeness because it's just a different conversation. You're not buying the person, right? You're buying the right to use their likeness. So how do you put a price on that? So the way that we value assets like image and likeness or any intangible asset is the same way we really value any sort of asset out there, whether it's a tangible one, whether it's a, it's a business enterprise, whether it's an interest in a business. We have as valuation professionals some basic methodologies and tools at our disposal to do these valuations. It's just that when you value things like image and likeness, there are other kind of unique issues associated with those assets that come into play. But as far as how we do it, there are really two primary methods that we tend to gravitate towards. There are others available to us, perhaps, but really two that, that we focus on. One, how much money do you expect to earn from the use of the asset in the future? And how much are those future cash flows or that future income, how much that is that worth today as of the valuation date? And so that's basically kind of a standard, what we call income approach using a discounted cash flow model. And that's the method, frankly, that was primarily used by the tax court ultimately in, in determining the value of the, of the image and likeness for Michael Jackson. The other method that we have available to us is what we call a market approach. And that's basically looking to see what have people paid for other similar assets and how can we use those data points as a way of determining the value of whatever the subject is of our valuation. So for instance, if we if we had another really famous pop singer whose image and likeness had been valued at some particular price, we can use that data point as perhaps helping us determine the value of Michael Jackson's image and likeness. So using essentially what we call comparables or comps to indicate a value. Okay. And so when you're talking about future, like when you're looking at these comps, are you thinking about future sales of music? Is it merchandise? Is it screenplays? Like, is it a combination? How does, like, what kinds of things go into that calculation? Yeah. So for the image and likeness, it's interesting. First, just to make sure everyone's aware, Aaron nor I are lawyers. So I don't, I'm not going to be providing any legal perspectives on the issue, but because we value things that are themselves legal rights, we tend to learn about these things over time and we work with lawyers to understand those rights. And, and image and likeness is interesting in the sense that the rights themselves generally flow from either statutes within specific states or case law from um, the courts in those states. And so what may be covered, how the asset is defined may be different in California versus New York versus Illinois, where I'm sitting today. And so one of the first things we do is, you know, we got to work with the attorneys to figure out, well, what are the rights that we're valuing? How are they defined? Which state laws are relevant? And so we kind of start there. And then we think about, okay, depending on how those are are defined, how do you make money from the use of those rights? So image and likeness generally, there are some common ways to, to make money from it. Certainly any sort of promotion where you're taking someone's name, their picture, their voice in some instances, and associating with the sale of a product or a service, usually those people are going to be compensated for linking their image and likeness with that product. So any sort of promotional opportunity 
is something that would be part of this type of valuation. When you're looking at that piece, that one that you just said, so like you're, you're, you're making that calculation, are you looking at the total value over time or are you saying, okay, we think this is a, he could get a contract over 10 years. So we're going to use like the present value of that. Like, how do you figure out that number for looking at like a date of death value? Yeah. So let's take it, let's take a real example from Michael Jackson's own actual experience. So after he passed, there was a Cirque du Soleil show that was developed based on Michael Jackson's music. And in that show, if you attended it, you would see images of Michael Jackson as part of the show. They had some really, as I understand it, neat three-dimensional images and things like that. And so what we would do if we were trying to figure out the portion of the value of the image and likeness that related to that particular use of it in that Cirque du Soleil show, we would basically say, okay, well, how long is the show going to run? What's our expectation? How much money are we expecting the estate or Michael Jackson to get paid from the use of the image and likeness? There's going to be some contract in place. We don't have to limit ourselves to the length of the contract. We might believe that there are opportunities beyond you know, a very specific contract period to make additional money in the future. But we're going to project that with as much certainty as we can into the future, how much money is made. And then we're going to discount those future income streams back to the present. So we're going to be creating this discounted cash flow model and figuring out what those future cash flows are worth at the valuation date. And so it is kind of a very, sometimes it's a very forward, you know, far looking, you look very far into the future, right? You know, mm-hmm. someone like Michael Jackson, they might be using his image and likeness for decades to come since he's so famous. And there are examples of other celebrities where, you know, we look at someone like Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, people who you still see them appear today in commercials, advertisements. And that is value related to image and likeness that we might be trying to capture in analysis like this. Gotcha. And so when you're looking at kind of putting that package together, are there other things that you look at? There are. So, you know, one of the key things, you know, you talk about timing, how far do you look out? One of the issues around looking at legal rights and valuing them, things like image and likeness, is that, again, you have to go back to the statute or go back to the case law. And typically, you're going to have to consider not only from a commercial perspective, how long in the future do we try do we think about projecting cash flow, but there's also a, potentially a legal limit. The, the law might say after 20 years, the image and likeness is now in the public domain and no one has ownership of it anymore. So there may be some limit to how far in the future you go to. So there are some legal questions around the legal life of the assets, for instance. But as far as the sources of income, you know, I gave you an example of promotions that one might use to help sell products or services. We talked about the use in a, um, in a performance like a Cirque du Soleil show. It's really, there's really an unlimited number of opportunities, commercial opportunities that exist for the use of the assets. And what we're really trying to figure out is what were the real things that were expected to happen in the future? We don't want to base our analysis on speculative things that were possible, but no one had ever thought about. There was no indication that those opportunities would really exist. It's really about what did you, what really did you think was going to happen? And a lot of times what we do is we'll look back into the history of how the image and likeness was used. And that's probably a good basis for thinking about what kind of commercial opportunities existed going forward. And then, of course, at the time of passing, what kind of conversations were being had by Michael Jackson, his advisors, with potential partners outside of his life that wanted to work with him? 
what real opportunities were coming to him where they thought they could make some money. So it was really those combinations of looking back at what's happened in the past, looking at what the real expectations are going forward, and making sure that you're not overreaching and kind of making things up just because there are things that could happen, but there was never really any indication that they, that they actually would. This was really one major issue with this case that caused such a disparate value where you had the IRS expert who was really looking at a number of opportunities, you know, that he thought that hypothetical buyer of Michael Jackson's you know, right of publicity could exploit, you know, such as, you know, and Scott mentioned the, the Cirque du Soleil show. There were also opportunities such as like a themed attraction and other products and branded merchandise and, and a film <laughs> or a Broadway musical. So these are the types of things that the IRS expert was projecting in terms of, you know, trying to monetize, whereas the estates expert, you know, the one that concluded on the $2,000 value was really looking at, well, in the time before Michael Jackson's death, you know, he would only generated, you know, a very, very small, you know, dollar amount, you know, in terms of revenue you know, from, from that asset. And so it's sort of this concept of, you know, in the court decision, you know, valuing the asset that existed, you know, that snapshot data death versus valuing the opportunity, the active management and monetization or what's possible going forward. And, and this is not an easy question. I mean, these are the things that, that valuation uh, analysts uh, wrestle with. Right. And I think that one of the issues in this particular case, if I remember correctly, is that the court just didn't buy the witnesses, the experts from the IRS, like felt like they weren't, it wasn't just a, a difference of opinion. Like you got the impression that the court just didn't believe the IRS's valuations and their, you know, as you you mentioned, hypotheticals. What did the estate side do differently that helped them, do you think, like helped the court believe them? Was it, did they come with modeling? Did they, like what kind of evidence would sway a court to say, okay, you know what, this is, you know, I know we mentioned some of these comps, but like, do you bring charts? Do you say people really didn't like him? I mean, how do you sell that to a court? Yeah, I would say that, you know, one of the very exceptional things that happened in this case was that the IRS's expert was found to have perjured himself on the stand. And my understanding is that any lie that was told was not actually really a substantive issue associated with the valuation. It was really things that were kind of extraneous to the actual value conclusion. But the problem is, is that when you're found to have not been telling the truth, you know, folks lose trust. And so part of what you see when you read this tax court ruling is that because the expert was found to have not been totally honest about certain things, although they weren't, again, major issues associated with the valuation, the court decided to really discount experts' opinion because they knew that they weren't as trustworthy. And so you know, it's just a really good reminder that, you know, when you've got to tell the truth, you've just got to tell the whole truth. And and you really do bring potential negative repercussions if, if you start stretching that truth. Beyond that general lack of trust, that I think, was developed during the case for the IRS's expert. The IRS's experts fell into the trap that we kind of talked about a moment ago, this idea of facing a valuation at the time of Michael Jackson's death upon Things that actually did occur after he passed, but that were not necessarily expected at the time that he passed. So, 
this Cirque Solution was a great example. There was no deal in place at his passing that indicated he would have a, a Cirque du Soleil show based on his life. That was something that did come about later on, but that was an explicit part of the IRS experts' analysis and evaluation. And I think if you read the tax court ruling, they, they really were not compelled to, to accept that as part of the valuation because they, they made the point that you didn't know this was going to occur. You really, you really came up with this idea because it happened to have happened after Michael Jackson's death, but you would not have expected that at the time. And so if we get back to this idea of make sure you're relying on information that's, you know, as we say in, our, in the valuation world, that's known or knowable as mm-hmm. a valuation date, and don't get tied up in thinking about things that actually occurred that you may have a tough time supporting would have been expected all the way back at the, you know, at the time of this passing. So I think that was, for me, one of the takeaways was don't get tied up in what actually happened, even though it's really easy to do that. Right. And along those lines, I have kind of a bizarre question that is, it's sort of hypothetical, so it may not even have a real answer. So when you're looking at valuation of things that are known, so stocks, for example, there are very specific rules about timing, right? So like if something good happened during the day and a stock soared, you don't necessarily look at the highest value that day. You know, you might look at the close or the the average, you know, depending on a few things. But usually there's a formula that you can use to figure out what was this stock worth on this day? One of the things that's kind of interesting to me that I've had folks ask, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, is would you have that same conversation on image with the person? So I was thinking about this, someone had kind of, we had been chatting about it before, and then I saw the news today and saw that, um, I believe it was Richard Sherman got arrested and it made the news today. If when someone gets up in the morning, people think really highly of them. And then uh, something happens to change that. Does that affect how you would value an image? Do you look at it at a time of day? Do you look at it? Like, does that factor into that? Or is that not something that you do? Because again, it's, there are rules for stocks. There are rules, you know, for bonds. There are ways that you, you look at a time, you look at close of business or you average over the weekend. Like there are things that you do. Do that for people in images or no? Well, Kelly, to you know, comment on sort of the publicly traded security or the stock, and, and you're right, the regulations essentially say, you know, to determine the average of the high and the low trading price in order to account for, uh, you know, any variation. You know, I think when we're looking at the value of, of any asset, you know, including intangible asset, you know, when we look at the history of case law in terms of, you know, how should valuation experts analyze this, you know, when we're dealing with a date of death, it's, it's that precise moment of death. <laughs> now, that's what comes through the court cases. And, and I'll be honest, it's, it's hard to interpret, well, what does that really mean? <laughs> you know, the moment of sure. death, you know, because you could have a situation, you know, a lot of times we value companies, you know, closely held businesses where, let's say the, the controlling owner is, is very, very impactful on the operations of the business and they pass away. And that can have a very harmful effect on the value of that business going forward. Right. Now, in this case, and Scott, I'll let you jump here in a second, a celebrity's death can actually have the opposite impact. Now, all of a sudden, you could have all kinds of opportunities <laughs> that may not have existed while that celebrity was alive you know, to monetize assets. But Scott, I'll let you chime in if you like. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key things that we always have to think about is that value can be created or destroyed very quickly for any sort of asset. And that's why this idea of doing evaluation as of a particular day and having a valuation date identified is so important to valuation because on one day it could be high, the next day it could be low. And, and you know, when someone, when the image and likeness is, is really susceptible to that problem, because you're right, something negative can occur to a celebrity who has a very high value of his or her image and likeness. And then the next day something negative happens and all of a sudden commercial opportunities go away and there's, there's very little or no value left. And so it really does matter when you're talking about the valuation and what that date is. As far as like the time of day, that's a hard one. I think that because image and likeness is not traded in a liquid marketplace like a stock is where you can at any moment of the day go and buy or sell it, it's a lot harder to think through some of those issues. But ultimately, if we're doing evaluation on the day that, some, that something really negative happened to someone, we would be anticipating a significantly lower value and we'd, we'd come to some right way of getting there than the day before, basically. So image and likeness and these types of intangible assets are a little different than stock prices because they're not constantly being updated. They're not constant transactions. In fact, there are very few transactions, which makes for kind of market-based approaches to be very challenging. But certainly the timing of all these things and when things occur is really integral to the valuation. Right. And one of the things that we talk about a lot, or I talk a lot about a lot, because I'm a little bit of a sports fan, is sports licensing. Are those the same kinds of conversations? And is reputational, right? There's a lot of do we love Tiger Woods today? Do we not? How do we feel about Bobby Benea? You know, those kinds of things. I know you said they aren't, you know, you're not buying and trading them every day. Is that something that gets revisited on an annual basis or like during lifetime? I'm, I'm speaking at during lifetime. Do you think about the way that likenesses are valued on an annual basis or is it just when like a contract comes up? So like, for example, if someone came to your firm and said, we're interested in, entering into an agreement with Messi, let's talk about what he's worth. Um, you know, obviously you would look at it at that time. I used to work with Forbes. They would do an estimation of someone's worth every year. And they did include likenesses just as you would like goodwill and companies. Do you revisit those annually? Do you look at those as events happen? How does that work? Yeah, I would say that when we're being approached from a valuation perspective on those types of issues, such as professional athletes, you know, contracts or endorsements, typically it's a situation where they're transferring those assets either into a trust or into a legal entity. And, uh, you know, the purpose tends to be, you know, estate planning in mind. You know, they're looking to sort of divide assets, you know, one concept actually kind of coming back to the Michael Jackson case, you know, there was this concept of, are these assets worth more in the hands of, you know, one owner assets, meaning, you know, in Michael Jackson's case, you know, the copyrights to the music and images and or other assets, you know, if they're packaged together, you know, are they worth more? And so from the standpoint of estate planning, if the idea is, well, <laughs> let's try and do some planning that's advantageous from a, an estate tax reporting perspective, you know, the concept is to maybe divide those assets, put them into separate trusts or irrevocable trusts or separate legal entities, such that if, you know, that celebrity or athlete does pass away, that, you know, the economics are such that, you know, we would value them at, at a lower amount. Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned this before. 
to you separately before the program, we used to do, you start out as an estate planner, or I started out as an estate planner, and, um, and it clerked with IRS in their estate audits division. And it was really interesting to me because we would have cases where people would present manuscripts, we would get artwork, and we would go to different kinds of experts for analysis. Does your firm work with individuals? Like, do you have, do you always call up PMA or is there someone that you look to if someone brings you, you know, something that's a little different or do you have in-house experts? How does that work on the valuation side? Or do you use experts? Do you just look at data? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, I would say, I mean, for the most part, when we're dealing with business interests and intellectual property, we have staff on hand, even tangible assets, such as, you know, real estate. When we get into really, really unique assets like gems or jewelry or artwork, you know, we're usually outsourcing that to uh, to specialists. I guess one of the reasons that I asked is because going back to the Michael Jackson case, you were we were talking about the fact that the IRS's experts weren't believable. I have a lot of listeners who are tax practitioners. Do you have any words of advice for them about how you seek out experts? Do you do that through networking? Do you, like, how do you find, like, I wouldn't know where to go if someone gave me a gem tomorrow and told me that they needed a value. Like, how do you find those people? Is it networking? Is it, do you Google? Like, how does that work? (laughs) Yeah, what I would say is it typically, and and I, you know, from my perspective, it's really more of the trust and estate world, which, which I found is, a relatively tight community, meaning mm-hmm. we generally know who the folks are that are involved in performing work, expecting that, you know, scrutiny from the IRS and preparing their work in a way where they are doing it in a persuasive way or documenting their work in a in a way that's going to withstand scrutiny or, or, or maybe expect or anticipate that this could see the inside of a courtroom. And so we generally know who those folks are and the people that focus and specialize you know, on that type of work. And so, yeah, it, it really comes down to sort of the, that, that networking that, that we tend to do on an ongoing basis. Right. Because some of these issues that we're talking about today, obviously, you know, you were bringing up numbers like 400 million, but in states like mine, so I'm in Pennsylvania and right next door is New Jersey. We have inheritance taxes that may be applicable and in Pennsylvania, it could be even at dollar one. So we're we still have valuation issues, not along the lines of a Michael Jackson, but you know, oftentimes they're easy. Like we discussed before, they might be stocks or real estate where it's very easy to ascertain. But there are these cases where folks are discussing with revenue how much is this thing worth? And you know, again, for things like gyms, I understand, but what do you do if someone has a stash of manuscripts, or they have, um, you know, some un- unreleased recordings. Do you have ways that you value that, or how would someone look at something like that? Yeah, and at Stout, you know, where, where Aaron and I are, we've got we have specialists in different valuation areas, right? So, so Aaron tends to focus primarily on enterprise type valuations or interests in enterprises. My particular expertise is in valuing tangible assets and specifically intellectual property. Um, we've got people who value tangible assets, plant and equipment, real estate. So you really do need, in theory, someone who's pretty focused on a certain asset class, who's probably going to do the best job for you. Firms like that have, tend to have folks with niches like that. If you were looking for any sort of intangible or IP valuation, 
we'd be able to handle it most likely. If there are things that we ourselves don't handle, you know, we have these networks that we've developed over time within the trust and state world and even outside in some instances where we can find other folks to help out or for clients, you know, who have needs that we can't handle. But, you know, generally there are firms like Stout that, you know, we basically have have developed all this internal expertise around very specific areas of valuation and tend to have expertise that we think can handle most of the opportunities that come our way for these types of even odd valuations. Well, thanks so much uh, for chatting with us today about Michael Jackson and valuation. I do think, like I said, we're all kind of fascinated, right, with celebrities. And I also think that this issue of valuation, though, does apply even more broadly than just to Michael Jackson. So I think this is going to be really useful for a lot of my listeners. If you wanted to be found and people wanted to find you either on social media or on the web, where would you send them? Yeah, so this is Aaron Stump. Yeah, the best place to track me down would be on my firm's uh, website. You can find my bio at uh, stout.com. Awesome. And I'll make sure to put that link in the show notes. And Scott, where can they find you? Yes, stout.com as well. And also uh, I'm active on LinkedIn. You can look um, me up by my name and posting and, and generally collaborating with folks pretty regularly on that platform. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for being here. I really do appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thank you very much, Kelly. Thanks for having us. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.